I'm I'm incredibly optimistic, and and I say that because the the researchers, the scientists, the people that I know that are out there trying to impact public health, they get it, and you know it's it's hard to change this system overnight, certainly, but I genuinely think in twenty to thirty years time from now, we will look back and think, gosh, we th- those ultra processed foods really you know, crept in and, and, and really caused serious disease. And we'll be so thankful that, that essentially they will be now consumed by minorities similar to smoking. Um, so, you know, I, I'm optimistic that this sort of change does take a lot of time. So, you know, hopefully uh, for people that are listening now, it's about understanding that when you walk into that grocery store, you walk into that stadium, you know, there are, there are, a lot of forces at play that are going to try and derail you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one thing we can control, we can't control the environment when we're out there, but you can control the environment in your household and in your family. And you can, you know, set up this holistic approach to health uh, within your four walls. You can teach it to your children. And, you know, the, the more people that are doing that, then, you know, even that, that makes me even more optimistic about, you know, the, the health of future generations. Welcome aboard. Thank you for joining us here today. Steve here. Dave here. How's it going? Hope you're doing fantastic. Thank you for attention. As always, we are most great. I hope your day's going well. Genuine. It's about to get so much better anyway. Yay! Uh, welcome to Happy Pair Podcast. We absolutely adore this. This is where we unpack so many things about life that fascinate us, raise our curiosity. And this week, we have a wonderful guest known as Simon Hill. Simon has a website, podcast, book, all called Plant Proof. He's a wonderful human. He's a physiotherapist and a master's in nutrition. And he's an incredible advocate for plant-based and plant you know, majority living. He's an evidence-based research. He's a wonderful practitioner, but often so many be advocates can just say it and not practice it. Whereas he's, he's a real... He's a big, handsome man that's full of muscles that lives in Australia. He's about 30-odd years old. And he's, he's a businessman. He's very interesting. He's a really curious character that's very... He's serious spine to in terms of his evidence-based nutrition. He's really all about putting out the evidence in terms of health and well-being. And trying to demystify many of these kind of nutrition topics that can be grey or people aren't sure about. And find studies that are relevant. We talk, We covered lots of different topics about, you know, he talks about these funny different studies of why certain foods make you react in certain different ways. He talks about what he eats on a daily basis, what foods to eat in terms of losing weight. We discussed about what we can do in terms of society at large in making... It was a great conversation. Simon's a really cool dude. Please listen to this if you're someone that wants to kind of improve their health, improve their relationship with food and just look at many other aspects of life, how you can become a happier, healthier version of yourself. Yeah, he's a great ambassador. So I hope you really enjoy this. Um, if you want to support us, just subscribe to us on Apple Or give, Podcasts, a, give a good or give positive a- review. We'd be extremely grateful. And uh, yeah, thanks, Emil. Hope you enjoy this. Enjoy Cheers. the show. Cheers. Yeah, I'm actually in. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles at the moment. Go oh, Simon! <laughs> What's happening in LA? Man. What's going on there? Uh, just hanging out, catching up with friends. My dad lives in the states as well, so a uh, bit of an opportunity to get over here and and see him. And my book comes out in the states in three weeks, so doing a, a little bit of stuff uh related to that too drumming up a pr tour yeah somewhat of a little bit but uh it's been fun it's been you know 
good to catch up with Rich and and other friends here. So I've had a I've had a great time. How are you guys doing? Oh, that's great. That's that's great. great. Yeah. yeah, having a lovely nice out. I just collected the kids from tennis. Collected two, three, dropped three kids off and collected another one and. Here I am for this. We had a lovely lunch with a friend from Canada who was visiting. And this morning we had two friends over filming some vegan documentary. We filmed that this morning with them. And she was swimming this morning and handstanding and messing. And sure, sure, here we are. All is well in the world. Very good. Very good. Well, I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, yeah, you too. Because you're visiting your dad. I was listening to a podcast with you earlier. And it was saying this was your dad who, when you were 15, nearly died of a heart attack. That mm-hmm. he's still alive now. Yeah, which was very scary, of course. Uh, I was I was 15. I was the only one that was with him on that day. And out of nowhere, you know, uh, we were just having a, a really fun weekend, as we always did. And he developed chest pain. And, uh, you know, within within a few hours, he went from being perfectly healthy no, he had no clinical diagnosis or was not taking any medications. And, you know, really he was, if you looked at him, he was 41 at that time. So very Same young. Same age as us. And uh, he, from the outside, he was representative, I guess, of a, a, a young Australian dad who was living the normal lifestyle. He, he didn't look ill uh, he exercised, you know, four or five times a week, a handful of times and ate the was standard he, was diet. He ripped, was he ripped like you? He wasn't necessarily, I guess, ripped, but he wasn't like someone that you would look at and say, you're out of shape. He, he was, you know, you would look at him and say, he's a, he's a fairly healthy guy. And he was probably working very hard or well, he was, um, you know, probably a little overstressed from work and trying to make ends meet at home. And he had two young uh, sons playing up as well to, to look after. Um, but I mean, what happened on that day, none of us saw coming. It was really a shock. And uh, he was, he was extremely lucky. We, we had a helicopter come uh, cause we were quite remote and take him to the nearest hospital and they you know hooked him up on on oxygen and checking all his vital signs and got him onto a stretcher and put him on this helicopter and all happening very quickly got him to the hospital there was a long wait for myself by that time my mum and my brother had arrived and you know thankfully because of that level of health care they saved his life and he he was having a severe heart attack and you know at the time i didn't realize how common this is and still to this day the the number one cause of death from cardiovascular disease which is the number one cause of death globally but the most most likely reason someone will die of cardiovascular disease is sudden cardiac death and sudden cardiac death is quite scary to think about because by definition it is Essentially, you get symptoms onset with no prior history or no diagnosis, at least no clinical diagnosis. Someone starts feeling chest pain and within an hour or so, they pass away. So it really does come from nowhere. And so my dad was very lucky. I didn't realize how lucky at the time. And a lot of people do not get the second chance that he has 
had. And, and thankfully he's, you know, very much made the most of that second chance. So I guess a lot of what I do today is fueled by wanting to kind of ring that alarm a little bit so that, uh, people don't wait until it's unfortunately too late. And he must be, he must be 60 odd now, your dad. And yeah. what's his, like, cause obviously you've been an ambassador for plant-based living and quality lifestyle for, I don't know, maybe a decade now or something. Yeah. And how has that been with translating that into your father? Cause obviously this is his second chance. How, and even how receptive our, is he? Even from our experience, when we first went plant-based almost 20 years ago, our parents thought it was strange. It was weird. <laughs> we were, we were odd. What are you doing lads? <laughs> Man, on, you'll have the lamb or you'll have the beef, mm. you know, find it really hard to come mm. to terms with it. But over time, uh, they've kind of warmed up, warmed up, and now they've been eating largely a plant-based diet for over 10 years now. And I wonder, is it similar with your yeah. father now? It's, it's funny how sometimes the hardest people to influence are those in your family. <laughs> and, uh, you know, also quite ironic. It's quite ironic. My dad has been doing, uh, he's a professor. Uh, he, he did his PhD initially in physiology and he's been doing research for 30 or 40 years now looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Wow. Uh, the irony. Yeah. So, uh, he of all people, and even when he was having that heart attack, he, he put himself into a state of denial, but he knew what was happening, you know, very, very well, uh, you know, almost down to a cellular level, he could describe what was happening to himself. And, uh, so you know, he being in, in, in that world of research, he of course has seen all of the immense, you know, science over the, over the past three, four decades. Initially there was a ton of research favoring sort of very pro uh, Mediterranean style diets that are very plant rich. And of course, over the last two decades, you know, mountains and mountains of evidence in support of plant-based dietary patterns for reducing your risk of cardiovascular disease, you know, so much that it's impossible to ignore, uh, which has made my job easier to, to influence him because the, you know, the science really is there and he, that's how he sees the world through a scientific lens. Uh, now in saying that, I guess knowing what to do and doing what we know are two different things <laughs> and changing behavior uh, is often the hardest part. So I would be lying if I said my dad found it very easy to change his lifestyle. He'd been eating a certain way for, you know, four or five decades. And so today he eats a, I'd say a very, very plant-based, plant-predominant, on many days, completely plant-exclusive diet. Uh, and certainly is not eating red meat or uh, even much poultry anymore. So he's essentially eating a, a I'd say a kind of pro vegetarian Mediterranean diet. And, you know, he's still looking to make more changes. He's always improving on that, but I've been really, uh, you know, inspired uh, by the changes. And I really admire the way that he's gone about it to make changes, which can be, you know, really difficult to build new habits. Very good. Cool. How's, it, how's it going? I heard uh, you've opened a restaurant called Eden with your partner. 
because we know restaurant game well and we know yeah. often people can get caught up with the romance and the allure of opening a food business and often forgetting that so much of it is graft and so much of it is being there every day and showing up and getting to know mm -hmm. your customers and getting to like it's the detail and and how's that working out when you have you know a public presence too and your partner and how's how's the reality mm -hmm. of it going for you yeah, it's been a very fun experience, but also, I guess, from a timing point of view, uh, an interesting one. We opened uh, right before the Australian bushfires, and uh, so that kind of made the the opening launch a little interesting. Uh, and and actually, Rich was in town then. He was eating at our restaurant quite a lot then uh, when he was in uh, Bondi. Um and so that was fun, but then very quickly COVID rolled around. Uh, so the restaurant's been open for say two years now. And largely a lot of that has been, you know, affected by COVID and, and restrictions and lockdowns. Uh, but certainly when we've been open, um, the, the sort of vibe in there is incredible. And we've had amazing feedback from the community and it's great to see, you know, a lot of people that are, are very new to eating plant-based food coming in and coming in two times, three times, and then becoming regulars. And to me, that's the most exciting part uh, about introducing some of these new flavors and foods to, to people that haven't been eating this way. And then hopefully they go home. And as you guys know, then they get inspired to think about uh, utilizing some of these foods in their own day to day. So uh, it's been, it's been super cool. As you said, it's, it's obviously very hard work. There's a lot behind the scenes that goes into making a, a successful uh, hospitality business, which everyone in hospitality uh, understands. And uh, I'm very lucky that Tanya, my partner, this is her passion. I think if you're going to, to set up a restaurant, it has to be your passion because of how much hands-on, you know, blood, sweat, and tears go into it. You, you really need to have some, some deep underlying purpose, I think, behind what you're doing. And she has that. So, um, you know, the success to date has has largely been a result of her, not me. <laughs> okay, that's very fair play to her. That's so you can be in LA while she is there to open the door and check the rosters and yeah. check the <laughs> that's whatever right. the tills or whatever might need to be done. Very good. That's a great one. Uh, okay, back to practical matters. So you've written a book. It looks great. Um, the proof is in the plants. Looks really good. I, I was looking for a chapter outline a, on it, but I couldn't quite find it yet. It's now coming out in the States. Can you tell us about it? Because I know you're like you're a nutritionist, you're a physiotherapist, mm -hmm. uh, like, and you're a very good advocate for the detail in terms of the science of why eating more plants is a very sensible things to do. Can you talk about the journey, the book, or what the book, what you were trying to encapsulate? Because there is quite a bit on, you know, from what I've uh, seen about it, it seems there's a bit of food ethics and regenerative agriculture and bits mm -hmm. like there's a theme in terms of food, et I don't know what the food specific word is. almost. Mm. Yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, by, by way of qualification, so I have a master's in nutrition science, so I do love getting into the nitty gritty. Uh, but I wanted to write this book for everyone. Uh, and I really, I wanted to address some of the consistent confusion that pops up on social or in the media about, you know, certain topics, be it 
saturated fat and one week it's great for our heart and then the next week we should be minimizing saturated fat and it does get very confusing for the average person out there so i wanted to try and uh, provide some principles i guess to help people uh, feel a bit more confident with the decisions that they're making and also to to help prevent them from being derailed by the next headline in the media that is inevitably coming it's not you know that's not going to go away um so the the outline of the book is part one is what i call diet of confusion and this is essentially outlining uh the various sources of of confusion in our environment that lead to the current food choices that most of us are making which really are setting us up for failure it's the reason we have all of these chronic diseases like uh, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, various cancers, dementia, that, that we very much normalized in our Western societies, but other societies are not seeing it anywhere near the prevalence that we are. Uh, and then part two is some of the science that speaks directly to how foods affect our health. And, and I go in and look at a few of those different sort of major conditions and then part three is like the practical side of things. So, all right, we've got all of this information and that's all well and good, but how do we start putting this into practice and, and start feeling better in our day-to-day -day and, and, and protecting our long-term health as well? Very cool. Well done. Fair play. Part looks, three, looks beautiful. Part three putting it into practice. Part so. three putting it into practice. Is that it? I'm, I'm, uh, so, so maybe let's, like, I'm curious as to, because you're, like, what size are you? You six foot? Two, one I'm, two, no I'm, I'm about six one yeah yeah on a good day six one i'm six two on a good day but i'm normally yeah. six foot. so that, that was meant to be funny but it didn't really sound yeah exactly. i always wanted to be six two but I'm, I'm like so what and you're in great shape like what what is your day to day what do you eat typically mm -hmm. in a daily basis i'd be very curious of you know and particularly when you're on the road like this how do you manage mm -hmm. it because there's plenty of eating out in restaurants and typically restaurant food is higher in oils and you know it's designed mm. to make it tasty and not necessarily healthy so what's your i'd love to know when you're when you're at home in your own environment what do you typically eat like gen you know yeah. to stay in shape and then what, when you're traveling how do you manage that so i guess uh my my general day-to-day -day eating is is based around food groups that i'm always trying to ensure that i'm getting and I will, I will emphasize different food groups uh, and I'll, I'll go into that, which kind of helped me achieve the, the goals, the physical activity goals that I have in mind. Um, but essentially fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds make up pretty much all of my calories. Uh, and I'm trying to get them from as whole sort of food sources as possible. Um, I would say that I have a huge emphasis on fruits and vegetables before I think actually about anything else. It's consistently consuming fruits and vegetables. They're incredibly nutrient dense. They're full of these phytonutrients, which are really protecting our cells against oxidative stress and, and decelerating cellular aging uh, and really defending us against many of those chronic diseases that I mentioned before, which uh, a commonality of all of them, it tends to be inflammation. And so these and what, what does and it mean? So, sorry, sorry for cutting you off there. Like I'm genuine. Like, so say this morning I had porridge for breakfast yeah. and I had almond butter. Like, like what do you generally eat on yeah. a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to, cause I, 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 I totally believe everything what you say genuinely in terms of plant-based thing. 
So, but I'm just yeah, curious so, the date. Like, what uh, is it? Oatmeal is is often a, what I'll start the day with, and so it'll be overnight oats that are soaked in almond milk or soy milk or something like that. Uh, there'll be a lot of berries. I'm huge on berries, and 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 mainly for the cognitive benefits. We can go into those at some point if you want. Uh, a lot of berries. There's some uh, nut butter, as you just said, then as well, be it almond or peanut, whatever. Um, other nuts and seeds in there. Uh, there will tend to be some other fruit in addition to the berries. So I'll, I'll rotate through uh, citrus fruits or banana. There's no kind of set menu in my household. Uh, I have some go-tos, like I know I'll have oatmeal and berries, but the, the toppings and, and whatnot, they tend to change. Um, and so it does look a little different every day. Between that and lunch, I will often have a very big smoothie. And this smoothie will be, uh, again, probably berries, frozen banana. Uh, by this stage, I will have worked out as well. So this is usually after a workout. Um, there'll be some plant protein in there. Uh, probably some more um, nuts and seeds and some chlorella, uh, which is like a seaweed that's really rich in iron. I like to put that in there as well. Uh, I'll often put some lemon in there too, which help really helps boost iron absorption. Um, some dark leafy greens will go in there. So some fresh greens into that smoothie as well. Uh, what else? Ice. Um, I'll load that up again. It'll, I'll throw Sounds in a whole like a lot of stuff. Sounds like a beast of a smoothie. Yeah, that's a big smoothie. I mean, I, I, I do, I guess with, you know, I weigh 90 three kilograms so i'm not sure you're in kilograms aren't you yeah, yeah, yeah we, we do, we do stones so stones and kilos so yeah you yeah. can do that yeah so you know I, I need to eat quite a bit of food and i guess one of the advantages of a plant-based approach is that it's naturally is very filling on less calories compared to a lot of diets out there so in in a world where a lot of people want to lose weight that's a great advantage of a plant-based way of eating for me i find because i don't really want to lose weight i need to focus on getting enough calories in or i will tend to lose some weight um but i don't see that as a bad thing i would actually prefer to have to work a bit harder to to eat enough calories knowing that if i want to lose weight it's actually much easier um and then for lunch it's uh, lunch and dinner is usually, you know, some mashup of a, a, a big bowl that will have whole grains in there. This is where I really focus on legumes. So a lot of legumes, I, I tend to eat more legumes than I do whole grains personally, uh, which helps me increase my total protein intake to get me, you know, more towards a slightly higher protein intake than I'd say a standard person who's not working out all the time is probably targeting. But you can certainly do that by really leaning into tofu and tempeh and lentils and kidney beans and chickpeas. And so I'd lean into those probably a little more than whole grains. Although the whole grains are still there, the serving size is just a bit smaller and the legumes are more emphasized. Uh, and then it, on those meals, there's sprouts, there's loads of dark leafy greens, uh, cruciferous vegetables, so broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and again, some sort of, of healthy fats, which are coming through nuts or seeds or avocado or some sort of dressing that's made of those. Uh, and, you know, none of this probably sounds that exciting because it's kind of how most people that are eating plant-based tend to eat 
similar to this. Uh, but I actually like to explain it to people that I'm not doing anything exceptional. Uh, I'm actually just eating, you know, it's, it's most of us probably only have five, 10, maybe recipes that we tend to have on, on rotation. And that's, that's kind of no different in my household. They're, they're the standard ones that I'll sort of work through. I'll mix up the fruits and vegetables. So they're kind of different all the time. And then if I want to get creative with new recipes, then that's something that I'll, I'll have fun with on a, on a weekend and grab, grab a cookbook like yours and, and try something new. She's good on you, Simon. Fair play. Uh, one thing I want to jump into is the sense of organic versus non-organic and often the connection with farms. So much of our food system is we're so separated from it. We tend to forget, you know, broccoli grows from the earth uh, and someone had to plant, germinate a seed, plant a seed, nurture the seed, harvest it, bring it to market, market vendor to supermarket. You purchased it, you put it in your fridge and then you cook it. And often there's this huge disconnect with the land and that Literally, all the nutrients we're consuming come from the soil. And in terms of farming, what role does this play in terms of nutrition? And then also, that's the first part. And the second part, organic versus non-organic. So this is a really good question. And it's it's quite contentious as there's people on both sides and it can get very polarizing quite quickly. So I'll tell you where I've landed. uh, And and this is what I do personally in my life. Um, You know, the... Firstly, if we look at the science, looking at conventional and organic produce and health outcomes, there's, there's not a whole lot of, of evidence there to date. And it's a very hard study to actually run uh, and, and sort of enroll people, for example, and have one group consume all organic and the other conventional and track them for 10, 20, 30 years. It's, it's hard to do that. So there are observational studies and there's two, there's two big observational studies, one out of the UK and one out of France. And, you know, in, in these studies, they're looking at the consumption of conventional produce versus organic produce and uh, cancer outcomes and looking at cancer risk. And there, there is a small signal for a type of cancer called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which seems to be slightly increased if you're, if you're consuming more conventional produce as opposed to the organic produce where there was lower risk of that type of, of cancer. But for the other cancers, there, there doesn't seem to be an effect or we just don't have you know, enough science to show it yet. Um, so then there are other studies looking at the nutrient composition of conventional produce and organic. And while the vitamins and minerals don't seem to be drastically different, what does seem to be a little different is that organic food has a higher content of antioxidant compounds. And this kind of does make sense. If you think about a lot of these antioxidant compounds are the plant's sort of natural defense system. And if you are planting plants in a sort of perfect rows and they're sprayed with a lot of herbicides and insecticides, uh, as in conventional farming, that plant doesn't need to sort of defend itself it can be a bit lazy. And so it produces less of these internal defense compounds, which are the antioxidants, which give say blueberries, their dark blue pigment. And this is why organic blueberries sort of grown in imperfect conditions where there's a bit of wind and they're exposed to the UV and there's predators and insects and stuff. They are, they are having to defend a little more for themselves and therefore have a slightly higher antioxidant 
compound. Now, my my view on all of this is I personally suggest to buy organic where possible, where it makes sense, but it doesn't always make sense for everyone. And also, I think if we just zoom back out and look at the wide body of evidence supporting plant-based diets that show fruits and vegetables and all these foods we're talking about are beneficial, these are from studies of people that are not necessarily consuming organic food. So what it tells me is that even if you're choosing conventional, it's it's significantly better than the foods in the standard uh, Western diet. So you, you're going to get a health benefit no matter what, uh, but perhaps there is a small amount of evidence to suggest buying organic where possible is a good idea. And going forward, I'd love to see more and more studies, you know, diving into this a little more and seeing if we can tease out uh, whether there is any other significant differences in terms of health outcomes. Uh, in terms of farming, I think I'm absolutely all for where you can getting down to markets and regardless of the type of whether it's conventional or organic, at least speaking to the farmers and seeing what they're doing to, to encourage uh, high quality soil. Are they tilling or are they doing no tilling? Are they using cover crops, for example, um, and polycropping instead of just having monocropping? And, you know, I find that if you get down and you can speak to the people that work on the farm, uh, you know, that's a nice way to connect you a little bit more and, and, and you can quite quickly work out whether the, the farm you're buying from, the people at least that are representing it, are passionate about producing high quality produce and looking after the environment too. Good answer. Good man, Simon. Well done. You dig in. Love yeah. it. Love uh, it. Okay, I got a kind of fun one here. Well, it might be fun. We'll see. But it might be crap. Go day. But you will have a go at it. Right. So, okay. So say if I brought my, a friend of mine in and he or she was slightly sick and I'd been telling him, Simon, I just read Simon's book. It's brilliant. Simon's deadly. And I was feeling him. Deadly's uh, a positive thing. Deadly's a positive thing. And we were sitting just having coffee. We were sitting having oatmeal one morning in, in, um, in Eden in Bondi. And I said to you, Simon, right, this is my friend here and he's slightly sick and he needs to be inspired. What's the Simon Hill recipe for well-being? What are, like, what are your p- principles? What do you kind of, like if you were kind of a quick summary of what, are you, what, what do you think are the main pillars for well-being and, you know, that you found in your own experience for your own life and what you've, I'm sure you've had to distill it for your book as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's start off outside of nutrition first. I, I, I like to, to take five, which is five minutes, at least twice a day, get away from the phone, by yourself you can meditate you can just think uh clear the distractions and and really use that time to to clear the noise remove the noise there's so much noise in the world today and really tap into how check in with yourself how are you doing and uh you will over time get to know yourself better which i think is a skill in itself and get to understand what your values and beliefs are. And as you do that, I think it that's key to then thinking about modifying your lifestyle to change your actions so they are more aligned with those values and beliefs. 
And the more we're doing that, the the more aligned we feel, the more at peace we feel and, and life just feels easier. So taking five, a couple times a day, trying to make, trying to make that non-negotiable sort of practice, I think is, is crucial. I know that's helped me a lot. Uh, exercise, absolutely. In, I should say movement. You know, I prefer movement. Just move in some capacity, whatever, whatever feels right for you. And it's something that you are uh, inspired or, or can commit to on a daily basis. It could be getting out and getting in the ocean. It could be going for a walk uh, with your dog. It could be going to the gym, but getting the heart rate up and sweating, you know, not just for the cardiovascular benefits, for the, but for the mental health benefits that come with that as well. Uh, and third, I would add uh, hydration. Um, we, you know, the, the, probably the best superfood in the world is water. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly not the sexiest superfood, uh, but hydration and, and often I'm asked how much water should we drink? Well, really it comes down to wh- how, how big you are, how much you sweat, how much exercise you're doing. And probably the best indicator is looking at your, uh, urine and it should be a sort of clear to straw color, light straw color, uh, as much as possible. Next sleep having a, some sort of routine, you know, our bodies don't cope very well. If we're always, uh, changing the time we're going to bed and waking up at different times and everyone's experienced kind of jet lag before in an acute scenario, fly to the other side of the world, like I did recently. And you feel a bit crummy for a few days, uh, and you have brain fog and, uh, you just don't feel generally, you don't feel as good about life. So that can happen in more of a chronic manner. If every day, you know, one day you're going to bed at 8 PM and the next you're going to bed at midnight and the next you're going to bed at 1 AM and the next you're going to bed at 10 PM, you're not giving the body consistent signals and our circadian rhythms, which are these natural 24 hour clocks in our cells that regulate our hormones and our body temperature and our digestion. They like to have a set routine and set signals. And so trying to go to bed, at the same time and waking up, you know, around the same time each night. And it's not going to be perfect all the time, but the, the more you can do that, the better. Uh, and I'd throw in there, you know, living a sort of extreme light exposure late at night is, is good one, at least a couple hours before going to bed. And, uh, you know, if you, if you're sitting in bright lights right before you go to bed, you're telling your body it's still daylight. You might be sitting in Ireland and it's, it's 10 PM, but you're really telling your body I'm in Sydney in the middle of the day <laughs> and it's getting confused. And then it's going to find, find it very hard to, to get you into a deep sleep, which is a restorative sleep. And uh, over time, that's, that's going to lead to waking up, not, not feeling recovered, feeling fatigued, feeling uh, as though you have brain fog. And, and, and also we know that you know, poor sleep and not looking after your sleep is associated with a lot of these chronic diseases as well. Uh, and then in the morning, trying to get up, and I know you boys love to do this because I see your videos out in the ocean, but trying to get up in that first hour or two, bright light exposure is key. And, and by bright light, I mean natural light, getting outside in the environment. And particularly if you can look at a horizon, that that is key to setting your circadian rhythms up for success. 
So there's a little bit, I guess, to think about at night before you're going to sleep and then in the morning. Uh, and then on top of that, I would throw in nutrition. And uh, my message around nutrition is more around consistency as opposed to perfection. Uh, it's, you know, play the long game and, and rather than judging uh, yourself on any sort of single meal, think about how you're consistently eating over time. And, you know, but I didn't write my book for someone to pick it up and make changes for two or three weeks. I would rather than make very small changes, build slowly and develop habits that they can hold on to for decades, not days. Great nice. job, my Simon mate, Hill. You're very that. articulate. You're very good. Yeah, my mate would be pleased with yeah, that. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Uh, one thing I want to get into is um, nutrition by numbers. Often we can live in a world where it's nutrition by numbers. I need X amount of protein. I need X amount of iron. I need this. I need that. And it can turn into this big fog and you're kind of left going, feck it, I'll eat the pizza. And to move beyond nutrition by numbers and to see so much of life is not just what we eat. And as you mentioned there, nutrition was one of mm. eight things that you mentioned there that were beneficial to sustaining a healthy, happy human being. How do we move beyond nutrition by numbers and this overemphasis on the desire to eat the perfect diet? And oh my God, you shouldn't steam your kale. And oh my God, you should eat, you know, X, Y, Z that's in fashion. How do we move beyond nutrition by numbers and start to emphasize other superfoods such as laughter, connection, mm. social contacts, face-to-face -face friendship, these simple things that are so mm. fundamental to longevity, to health, and to feeling good about ourselves. Yeah, this is so important. And uh, I think the reductionist approach to, to numbers is uh, it's a lot of this stems from early nutrition science. We were dealing with, you know, scurvy and pellagra and beriberi these were like nutrient deficiency yeah rickets nutrient deficiency disorders right so it kind of made sense like let's zoom in on vitamin d or let's zoom in on vitamin c and at the time for the diseases that were prevalent in the early 1900s that made a lot of sense uh but today these chronic diseases we're seeing they're not the result of a single nutrient. Uh, they are the result of a poor lifestyle. They're lifestyle diseases. And so when we think about food, it's dietary pattern. It's not a single, uh, a single uh, you know, iron or, ca or calcium or vitamin D. And so I'm with you there. I like people just thinking about dietary pattern. And then a broader step from that is as you say, and I'm not sure I have the perfect answer other than leading by example, is to show that let's not let's not even get so reductionist with diet let's understand that diet is powerful and important but you can have the best diet in the world and if you're not setting yourself up for success in those other aspects and looking after your mental health for example then you're, you're not going to be truly optimizing your overall health and, and well-being and so uh, let's not see diet as a panacea and, and, and sort of, you know, a, a solution for fixing all it's one component of an overall healthy lifestyle. And, you know, I think, I think the best thing that all of us can do there is, is leading by example for our friends and our community, our family to, to, to follow from. 
Totally. I, I've got two things to say. Can I go in? I got, oh, no. I, okay. Can I just say one? Okay, I'm I, excited too. I was going to say that, uh, like, you're very good in terms of, like, often that word vegan is very binary and people, like, it can be a religious term that really puts as many people off as it welcomes Highly people in towards it. And I noticed that your terminology, and it probably was conscious at one point, where you're plant exclusive or plant dominant, and you use these friendlier terms that are less, they're more <laughs> woollier. And they also kind of embody the spectrum, that it's not just a yeah. yes or binary choice. It, there's a spectrum of choice. Yeah, which is, can you say something about that? Because it's, it's uh, I'm It's a nice progression it's nice. from it's vegan good. or non-vegan. Because mm -hmm. it, yeah, vegan has a whiff of cult off it, whereas... You know, sometimes. Yeah, I something I say in the book is, uh, I guess when I'm going over what my thesis is, my thesis is is more built around that from a health perspective, plant predominant diets consistently in the science are are shown to lead to the best health outcomes, and that can be anything from a sort of very plant rich pescatarian diet to a completely whole food plant based diet, uh, and everything in between. And however, when you look at planetary health and you look at animal welfare, you know, all, all life on the planet and, and the fact that our food choices do affect much more than just ourselves, a strong case can be made for adopting a diet that is as plant exclusive as possible. So I say as plant exclusive as possible, I guess, because I'm more speaking to the diet rather than the ethic so much and 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 i think when we talk about the the vegan diet or veganism it is more than just food it is about the overall ethic and uh, of how someone lives their entire life and makes choices beyond just the food that they're eating uh and certainly uh you know i would identify myself as a vegan uh but i guess you know i'm writing my book more from a nutrition point of view and, and really just putting it out there, you know, hopefully in a softer way and letting people find the level of commitment that feels right for them. Yeah, like good that. job. That's nice. I like that. That's a good distinction. It really is. It seems more yeah. welcome into the party. Well, as one thing, one to... thing I want to talk briefly about is the, the concept of epigenetics. I know when your father had his heart attack, uh, I remember listening and hearing that you said the cardiology sat down with yourself and your brother and kind of said, now look at your genetic predisposition. You're likely to struggle with a similar position, uh, prepare yourself for it, you know, take appropriate measures. And that was it. But often the concept of epigenetics and the, the factor of we're not just our genetics, that lifestyle has, you know, it's often said that. Mm. Uh, genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. Mm. I wonder if you can just talk about epi the, the importance of epigenetics yeah. and that sense of empowerment that we are more than simply, mm. that lifestyle is more important than genetics. Yeah, this is, this is crucial. Uh, so I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, besides a, a few conditions, you know, someone could be dealt in a very rare circumstance, you could be dealt a genetic card that, that no matter how you live your lifestyle, that is going to affect your your health outcome and those are very very rare circumstances very rare genes gene mutations and obviously incredibly sad because no matter what that person does that's their fate but by and large for most of us and and, and particularly when we're looking at these common uh, chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes even if we are genetically predisposed to them we have 
far more control than our genes do in terms of whether those genes are actually expressed and whether that disease actually develops and ends up affecting us. And there are some identical twin studies uh, and you guys will like this one that Woo! have, t- but however you, you are, you wouldn't be allowed to be enrolled in this study because you both live the same lifestyle in the same country. What they did in these studies were they took uh, twins, identical twins, but they looked at uh, identical twins who moved and lived in different environments And so the idea is, okay, let's try and tease out what is the effect of genes on health outcomes here versus the environment, nature versus nurture. And they were able to show that genes accounted for around 20% of the health outcomes and the environment, how these people were navigating through life accounted for about 80% of their health outcomes. So it does sort of uh, this, you know, shows or stress stresses the importance of the decisions we're making in our day-to-day and how integral they are to our health outcomes. Uh, and there's another interesting study that you, you guys might find uh, interesting is uh, out of Sweden. And this was a, uh, I found this fascinating. They, they looked at dog uh, owner uh, pairs. So they had like 200,000 um, owners of dogs in Sweden. And they were able to show that if, if the owners had type two diabetes, their dogs were around 30 to 40% more likely to also have type two diabetes. And so people may think, well, that's odd. And really what it shows is that uh, we, we share our risk of chronic disease with those that live in our households, in our environment, who share our lifestyle. And that can be our family, like, you know, myself with my brother and my dad, or it can be with our pets as well. Um, You know, if the sedentary behavior is being shared to them as well, for example, or if they're being overfed. Uh, And, and so, you know, this, as you say, is, is very empowering, you know, it allows us to kind of flip the script a bit and, and realize that, you know, Yes, these diseases are running in, in our family and our friends' family, and we see them all, ta- all the time and they've been normalized. But by and large, they're running in, in our family and our communities because we're adopting the same lifestyle. And if we don't change, if we do not change and we just carry on living the same lifestyle as everyone around us, how can we expect a different result? Cool. Very good. I love that. It, it reminds me of what you said there. It reminds me of that a friend is a microbiologist and he was saying that like me and Steve are 99.9% recurring genetically identical, which is kind of like, you know, we're pretty, we're, <laughs> we're um, mirror twins. But then he was saying that like the fact that we live in different houses and we have different wives and different families, like my microbial, like at a microbiology mm. level, I will be much more like my wife than I will Stephen because you know when you spend time with in a different environment with different people even in different houses even though we spend most of our time together at a microbiological level like microbes bacteria will be completely differently and we were also involved in a twin study in University College Dublin here and it was similar it was nature versus nurture on the impact on identical twins it was 60 sets of identical 60 sets of non-identical yeah so okay I've got I've got another one for you so okay so nowadays so this we're going to go big here and then we'll try to distill it down so nowadays like you know 
certainly in the UK and Ireland, you know, we live in, a, in an obesogenic environment where about 50%... That's a big word, Dave. What is, does that mean? That means obese, obesogenic, the environment, the food environment. When you go to shops, the food around there is much more likely to make you obese. Okay, very Thanks, good. Thanks, Steve. Good question, though. Okay, so we live in an obesogenic <laughs> environment, that which we just clarified. And um, about 50% of calories, at least, are ultra-processed foods. And, mm. and then there's probably at least 40% are animal-based foods, and less than 10% are typically whole plant foods. And I look nowadays to the youth. I look at, like, my children, their peers. I look at teenagers, and I'm concerned. I'm kind of going, okay... The youth of today are a product of our current food culture and food environment, which is which is at the top of the food chain is really these massive food manufacturers that are profiteering on the fact that our basic human hard, hardware is hardwired for fat and sugar and salt. And when you, when they create products with, with the right amounts of fat, salt and sugar, it's very addictive and it's very difficult for us to not want more of it because more and more dopamine is released in it. Okay, What's the answer, Simon? How do we fix it? That's Sorry, a no, that was big a big one. one. But but like what what can we do as individuals? Because as parents, as kind of people that are part of societies, as like looking at yourself that is a leader in terms of plant-based movement, like what can we do in terms of food policy questions around food policy? I, I don't know, but it's this it's is... more a huge open art arts question on what can we do. Very I'm good. very Thanks. glad you asked this question. I mean, this is getting to the core of the problem, right? You know, we can, we can educate and inspire people and it's fantastic because we can give people information ahead of time and say, Hey, don't wait for the environment to change. Uh, you know, like smoking, for example, we had the, the data that smoking was causing lung cancer, but it took 30 years for the government to come in and legislate and change the environment. And, um, you know, people that acted early, they, they were, you know, far more likely to to not develop lung cancer and live a longer life. And sadly, the people that didn't act early, uh, you know, many of them went on to develop lung cancer and died. So, um, I don't want to discount the the sort of uh, the role of of educating the individual. Now, I very much see that as you know, doing what we're doing is about helping people understand that the environment is stacked against you. The environment is essentially set up like you just explained in a way that exploits our biology. You know, if you go back from a, a evolutionary sort of perspective here, we are wired to seek out, find calorie dense foods and, and really feast on it because it, you know, who knows when the next famine's going to come. And, and, and we can put on essentially unlimited numbers, number of fats. So these hyperpalatable foods that create hedonic hunger, which is essentially describing this appetite in the absence of actually physio physiologically requiring calories. And that's what's happening. We're feeling hungry, even though our body does not require energy. And that is a problem. So how do we go about changing that food environment? so that naturally we don't need the population to develop a high level of nutritional literacy. Because imagine thinking everyone needs to have a high level of nutritional literacy to be healthy. That's just, that's, that's unrealistic. People need to walk into their, to their grocery store, their petrol station, uh, which won't be there for hopefully too much longer. Uh, and, you know, the kiosk or the school, the school sort of canteen or whatever you call it in your country, uh, the 
the football stadium where they're serving food, all of these spots need to make it the, the, the affordable and the convenient option is the healthy option. And so this, a lot of this does come down to political willpower and, and who's, are we going to have brave politicians who are willing to better regulate this market? Because the transnational big food companies like, like you spoke uh, about there, they love an under-regulated market and they like to sort of self-regulate and be seen to be doing a lot, but really not a whole lot is happening. And uh, I know in the UK, for example, they introduced a sugar tax that's now been introduced in about 50 countries around the world and seems to be having an impact. Still probably need a few more uh, studies to kind of identify how big that impact is. There are a lot of other strategies like um, changing regulations around what food can be at checkouts. And instead of having these ultra processed chocolate bars, having healthier food where people are likely to make an impulse grab for a snack or something. Um, there's, there's also research uh, and, and Harvard University has been involved in a, a quite a bit of this. And they, they did this really interesting experiment at a hospital in Boston you know, hospitals are notorious for serving some of the worst food uh, on the planet to some of the sickest people who need, you know, arguably need the healthiest food. And they, they used a couple of strategies, which I think are, are really crucial to helping fix the food environment. Uh, they, they had a, a, a hospital cafeteria and they, they used a sort of two-phase strategy. The first was they labeled foods with a traffic light system. We know that labeling has to be simple. As soon as the labeling gets very complicated, people don't know how to use it. And so they did a, a green light, an orange light, and a red light. And essentially, your green light was foods that were either you know, fruits and vegetables or contained fruits and vegetables. They were low in saturated fat, low in sodium. They weren't ultra-processed, not ultra-processed meats. You know, Coca-Cola and sugar-sweetened beverages were all red. Water was green. Uh, and just doing that, they saw significant increases in purchase, purchases of healthy food and significant decreases in purchasing of unhealthy food. So it's a very small change within that environment to help people make better decisions. And they did. And there was no change in terms of pricing at all for that. And then the, the second part of this phase, which saw people make even more healthier choices, is uh, research looking at a, uh, a, a method called choice architecture. And this is really... Yeah, this is really neat. And, and there are a number of uh, researchers, public health sort of researchers, looking at this uh, as an intervention strategy. And, you know, grocery stores and brands fight for space at eye level. Whatever is at eye level, we buy more of. And so they, they identified this and, and they literally in that cafeteria moved the unhealthy foods to the lower level and moved the healthy foods to eye level. And also in addition to that, they, they increased the number of spots where water was available, which, you know, obviously they defined water as the healthiest beverage in the cafeteria. So instead of having it in one spot, they put it in about six spots. 
So just changing the sort of architecture of that environment, again, significantly increased purchasing of healthy foods and decreased the purchasing of less healthy foods. Um, so I think that, you know, fixing this is going to be a combination of uh, introducing some sort of taxation or incentive for food companies to, to have to consider reformulating. Um, and making sure those reformulations uh, are not just, you know, swapping sugar out for something else that's, that's unhealthy. That needs to be really properly thought about. Um, and, and then changing how our food environment is showing up. Uh, at the same time, if, the, if, we're, if we're introducing taxes to make these less healthy uh, products more expensive, then all of the fruits and vegetables and, and foods that we know, you know, unanimously are health promoting should be subsidized and made even more affordable for more people. Um, so those are, I guess, some of the, the, the things that need to happen. I'd also like to see uh, what's known as the revolving door phenomenon. Uh, I'd like to see an end to that because I think that's standing in the way of a lot of these changes. And what that is, is uh and it, it happens in all countries I know, i'm most familiar with the australian data but it's very very common for members of parliament who are creating these legislations to cross over and then work in the food industry and also vice versa and often they actually cross over or they'll move from the government to the food industry after they have made a big legislation in favor of the food industry and so we we need to uh, find a method to cut these ties so that the food industry does not have these close relationships with those in government that are making the, the legislations because government should be looking after public health interests first, not the profits and the interests of these private companies who, whose priority is not our health. It is, it is profits for their shareholders. And so a few different countries around the world have now brought in a cooling off period which I think just has to happen. It's a conflict of interest. If you leave government or you leave a, a big CEO position in the transnational food companies, there needs to be a two, three, four, probably five-year period where you can cross between and, 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 and work on the other side. And if you do that and you cut some of those ties, I think we then start to see uh, a government that is actually uh, out there advocating for public health and not advocating just to, to give these food companies a kind of uh, free ride, so to speak. Yeah, it's a big one, isn't it? Like, it's such a big one to tackle that sense of, you know, profit over public health, because so much of our healthcare system is kind of, you know, managing illness, really, as opposed to disease prevention. And even we've seen a lot of it recently, very little of, you know, the recent kind of pandemics very little of it is focused on the individual's health mm. as in we should start to eat better we should start to exercise better we should try to foster more closer social connections so that we feel more fulfilled and this will result in stronger immune systems you know so little of it is handed at the individual level unfortunately and it's such a big one so much of it is uh, on the other side encouraged for these transnational um food companies uh, which are profiteering i like your fun. i like your analogy to smoking though that like when i think of it in our lifetime smoking has you know, as a cultural norm, it's kind of more a cultural, you know, minority rather than the majority at this stage in our lifetime over the last kind of two decades. So maybe there's a possibility with food that it actually does shift to 
being more like it's hard to imagine at this stage because you know as we said the food environment we're, we're so is, far down that rabbit hole of just processed foods and it's just, just wow. and it's so like it's like as someone that's very health conscious and has been for a number of decades like i'm used to it but when i travel and i go to different places I, i'm kind of taken out of my bubble and kind of go wow geez there's a lot of you know there's a whole other side yeah. that i'm just not exposed on a daily basis I, i'm i'm incredibly optimistic and and I say that because the the researchers, the scientists, the people that I know that are out there trying to impact public health, they get it. And you know, it's it's hard to change this system overnight, certainly. But I genuinely think in twenty to thirty years time from now, we will look back and think, gosh, we th- those ultra processed foods really you know, crept in and, and, and really caused serious disease. And we'll be so thankful that, that essentially they will be now consumed by minorities similar to smoking. Um, so, you know, I, I'm optimistic that this sort of change does take a lot of time. So, you know, hopefully uh, for people that are listening now, it's about understanding that when you walk into that grocery store, you walk into that stadium, you know, there are, there are, a lot of forces at play that are going to try and derail you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one thing we can control, we can't control the environment when we're out there, but you can control the environment in your household and in your family. And you can, you know, set up this holistic approach to health uh, within your four walls. You can teach it to your children. And, you know, the, the more people that are doing that, then, you know, that, that makes me even more optimistic about, you know, the, the health of future generations. Lovely. Okay, like last couple of que- last question for each of us. Okay. Well, maybe. Okay, I have one. So, okay, so so you're in LA now. So you're not in your natural food environment. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're staying in a place where you can prepare your food or not. How do you manage your food when you're away? And how do you mm-hmm. to give yourself special dispensation because you know you have to eat out more. You're meeting people. You're tired. You're jet lagged. You're caffeine fueled. You're trying to stay awake. You want to bring how the best. How do you manage you your can. own food? Because I know food is a real cornerstone of your well being. Yeah. Okay, so uh, a couple things. I'd say that my food budget's probably gone up a bit. I'm probably spending a little bit more. Um, but for the first couple of weeks, I had an Airbnb, and that's strategic for me. I'd, I'd much rather stay at an Airbnb than at a hotel when I'm on the road because I can access a kitchen. And so I was doing a, a lot of just grocery shops and eating the same sort of foods as I normally would. <laughs> um now, in the last week, I've been at a hotel because I'm at a different location and there's a, a grocery store down the road that has a, a buffet. Um, it's, called, it's Whole Foods. So it's not, it's not the cheapest grocery store in America, but they have a buffet and it has all of the different dark leafy grains and legume options and uh, you know, nuts and seeds and everything. So I'm making sure that, that I have at least one very, very healthy, big meal from, from there every day from that sort of buffet. Um, and then I'm, you know, if I'm out at, at restaurants or cafes, I just choose, you know, tend to choose the kind of healthiest option that I can at the time. And, you know, I realize that my diet while I'm over here is not going to be kind of as consistent and, and healthy or dialed in as my diet would be in Bondi. But I guess, you know, that's just part of, of traveling a little bit. Yeah, like that. That's kind of practical. Uh, last and final question, Simon. For anyone listening, kind of, you know, curious, not sure, needs a bit of an L, inspiration. Can you finish with a kind of inspirational 
you know, just for someone to start trying to experiment and to start to eat slightly healthier, as you mentioned, those kind of five or six pillars that were, you know, you succinct, you're beautifully succinct. And they so kind he's of, kind of looking for like a big kind of finish, you know, Walt like Disney a movie, take out the violins. Like, a, like a climax <laughs> and then we can just ease our way out. Like, I think I'd just say to remove some judgment, I think that we can be our own biggest critic and it can all of this information if it's new to someone can seem very overwhelming where do you start do you upturn your entire diet overnight uh and 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 often that can lead to not starting at all and you know i'm i'm a big proponent for just starting small just just as soon as you uh finish listening to this podcast and, and, and you feel inspired to, to make some changes because you don't want to wait for pain, you know, because that story about my father is resonating with you. And maybe you're a young father yourself and you realize that for, for a long time, you haven't considered your health. Think about one change that you can make today, you know, from all of the things that we've discussed here. Maybe it is the, the five minute break that I mentioned before and tapping into yourself and quietening the noise and, and, and thinking about how you're feeling. Maybe it is from a dietary perspective, uh, simply thinking about one meal a week, not having red meat and instead introducing some legumes. You will know where, where you feel comfortable starting, but start somewhere. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain I have so much faith that if you do that and you slowly build on that, over over months and over over a year uh particularly and then over multiple years you will look back and you'll be incredibly proud of the changes that you've made you'll feel more positive healthy uh inspired and uh you know you will be protecting your your health span and, and hopefully you're you're living more years in good health higher quality of life for longer love it Simon Hill, Simon. great Woo! job, Simon. You're brilliant. You really are so smooth, so great condensed, dude. very articulate, fabulous. Been a joy to talk to you. For for anyone listening, where can they learn more about you, Simon, and your book? Yeah, cool. Well, if they're not tired of listening to my Australian accent, they can listen to the Plant Proof podcast. It's it's kind of a bit of a, a geeky podcast where I sit down with scientists and researchers and learn about what they're up to. Uh, the book is called The Proof Is in the Plants. And it's out in the UK and Ireland, November 1st. So not too, too long from now. Uh, and you can find me on the socials at, at plant underscore proof. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank well, you, Simon. Well, you're you've been a joy. You really are. I look forward to hanging out in person someday. Yes, me too, guys. It's, uh, it's been, that'll be a long time coming. I'd love to come over to Ireland. I know I was going to do it at some stage and it didn't work out. So um, let's make sure we do that. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to having you guys on my show sometime soon too. Brilliant. Love it. Brilliant. Thanks, Cheers, Simon. Simon. Thanks, Mind me. yourself. Enjoy LA. Simon's a dude. I really enjoyed that. We went, covered lots of broad topics. Thanks for making it this far. Genuinely, we really appreciate it. Yeah, he's it. wonderfully polished, just very articulate, really into science and the data and kind of evidence-based research. Do check him out. Super I know his dude. podcast, I know his podcast gets lots of, uh, like it gets quite technical in terms of science. So he's very good in terms of that. I'd imagine his new book is great. Lovely dude. I genuinely look forward to um, hanging out with him. And yeah, once again, thanks for listening. We are most Thanks grateful. for your time. We absolutely love this. As we always say, please, um, 
if you enjoyed this please share it on social please tag us we will um send it on to or share it reshare it and let us know any guests you want to you want us to get in the future or contact because we love this outlet it's something that really you know ignites the spark of the fire within us so if there's anyone that you think would be great to get on please let us know a uh, big shout out to sean cal and sarah fawcett who produce and shoot and edit the podcast which we're most grateful for so yeah thanks, thanks again, again. And, and if you really do want to support the podcast just subscribe on apple or follow us on or give us Spotify a review and give us a review and a positive review help oh yeah positive review uh, anyway lots of love bye 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 b